What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Geno Time Podcast here on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. My name is Tom Westerholm. I'm joined today by Chris Grenham, Nicole Yang. How's everybody doing? I'm not well, Tom. The Chris Dunn era is over in Boston, so I'm not I'm not well. That was a pretty devastating hit for you. The Celtics traded Chris Dunn and Carson Edwards for uh Juancho Hernan Gomez. The trade is a like future second round pick, probably doesn't really mean anything at all, as well as Chris Dunn, Carson Edwards for Hernan Gomez. The Celtics clear some uh, log jams at guard and bring in a position of need. What do you guys make of the trade? I mean, any flaming hot Hernan Gomez takes that you want to get out there? No flaming hot takes from me, but you know, kidding aside with the Chris Dunn stuff, I actually do think it was a really good deal for the Celtics. They had to get, you know, at some point from 16 down to 15 here in terms of the roster number, they were able to do that. They were able to, like you said, thin out the backcourt by getting rid of two guards who realistically, neither of them were going to see all that many minutes probably in that pretty backed up rotation there in terms of uh, a lot of guards. So I think that was good. And the fact that it wasn't just a salary dump was pretty good. They got Juancho Hernan Gomez, who, yeah, hasn't panned out to be the player that Denver expected him to be when they drafted him in 2016 or whatever it was. But I think there's still a little bit of upside there. He's non-guaranteed next year. So you keep some financial flexibility on him and you get a floor spacer deep off the end of the bench, helps front court depth a little bit. I think it's a good trade for the Celtics. Yeah, I think it was a good move on Brad's part. Like, I think we need to stop like trying to talk ourselves like into every player that he picks, if that makes sense. Like Juancho Herman Gomez, sure, like a fine player. He's not going to move the needle. Like this was more of a better deal because of the reasons Grenham outlined. Like they needed to get to 15 players anyway. It allows them to maintain their financial flexibility and it gives them a little bit more depth at the center power forward position than a position that they already had a bunch of very good options. Options, but still, it's not like Quancho's going to get much playing time. I texted one of my friends who used to work for the Timberwolves and was like, thoughts? And he goes, stinks. So I don't think, like, realistically, I don't think he's going to play much of a role on the Celtics. Like, you have Al Horford, you have Rob, you have Ennis Cantor, Bruno Fernando. I just don't really envision him getting much playing time or any significant time, to be honest, barring any injuries. And if there are injuries, sure. Not that, again, he's going to be this huge difference maker, but he'll be able to hold his ground and things like that. But I just don't think this is like a, oh, my God, the Celtics got Juancho Hernan Gomez or, like, this is a rotation piece or anything, really. Like, I just think it was a good move in terms of, like, Brad's master plan. Speaking of injuries, is he going to be ready for training camp? Because he missed the I know, he missed the Olympics. I think he hurt his shoulder. He claims that he was healthy for the Olympics, but the front office, the Minnesota front office, oh right, him. so right, right. I, I forgot means- about that debacle. Yeah, I assume that means he's healthy then, but who knows? Yeah, and Nicole, to your point though, I, I think you're you're 100 right that people need to be a little bit careful of like hyping up every dude that Brad goes and gets. Like, just because it's a good move doesn't necessarily mean that the guy coming back is going to be some super helpful contributor, unless like, it's that- Chris Dunn. <laughs> that said, like Hernan Gomez fits the Celtics, if only because I think he can now be like a more reliable version of what the Celtics kind of have in Jabari Parker, right? Where like Jabari is like kind of a bigger body. You can throw him out there occasionally on bigger dudes. And maybe, yeah, maybe Jason Tatum doesn't have to guard somebody who's like way stronger or way more muscular than him, you know, whatever it might be. Like it just gives the Celtics another like big body. That said, I mean, you know, like you were saying, Nicole, this guy shot 32% from three, which isn't like amazing. It's not bad. You look at his free throw percentages. He can't make free throws. Like that's concerning when it looks like, you know, when, when you're looking at a guy who's supposed to be something of a floor spacer. His rookie season, he shot 40% from the three-point line. But like that's been 
all over the place. I don't know that he's like going to be a super consistent player. I don't know how much he's going to contribute, but I just clearing the log jam makes a lot of sense. Sending a couple of guards out who probably didn't have a lot of trade value and bringing back somebody who can at very least be tall enough to fill a position of need, I think is, you know, a positive for the Celtics. Like you both said, from a pure positional standpoint, from a pure, the Celtics needed one more tall basketball player. They got what they needed in exchange for a couple of guys who probably weren't going to see much playing time anyway. Yeah, I think it's a low-risk maneuver. Like, you're not, again, like, he's not guaranteed next year, so you're Which not... low-risk maneuvers at this stage in the offseason is what you want. You don't want to be taking high-risk maneuvers in, you know, well after free agency is done. Exactly. There's no need to be taking major swings here. And so Brad is hitting singles by going and getting Juancho Hernan Gomez. And if you can have a guy like that who can is like a little more of a, I guess you could say skilled big on the offensive end who can space the floor a little bit. If you do deal with injuries, like Nicole said, it's nice to have that guy at the end of the bench to kind of fill. I like the comparison to Jabari Parker, like skill sets are a tad bit different, but it's yeah, a similar, yeah. similar idea there where you have that extra front court piece. So I think it makes sense. I mean, yeah, his numbers don't really instill much confidence, but he brings something that Carson Edwards sure didn't bring and Chris Dunn didn't really bring either, which is size. Overall, like you said, it's low risk, but that doesn't mean it's like high reward. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Who did we get in trouble with uh, for saying they were low um, risk? Jabari, right? Like (laughs) Jabari. Yeah. It's exactly what Tom said about Jabari. It's low risk, low reward. Yeah. Yeah. But they don't need a high reward right now. It's okay if there's a low reward. That's fine. (laughs) Exactly. So let's talk in terms of Chris Dunn first. I do think it's kind of interesting that the Celtics had a guy who is an NBA veteran, has been around, and you kind of know what you're going to get with him, and they moved on from him. I mean, obviously the logjam at guard is, is significant. I do think this means the Celtics have some amount of confidence in Peyton Pritchard. The summer league thing obviously isn't representative of who he's going to be. He's not going to be some 55% three-point shooter, flame-throwing, you know, throwing up 20 points a game, dishing out 15 assists. But he can be a real contributor. He is somebody who's ready to go this season. Not a huge surprise based on what we saw last year, but, you know, it seems the Celtics do feel good enough about him, the combination of him, Schroeder, and Smart, that they're just like, okay, let's roll with this. Yeah, I think it makes sense, too, because Pritchard has shown the ability even last year before he showed the improvements at Summer League to come in, run the offense for a little bit. And when Schroeder came in, like it made even more apparent that Carson probably wasn't going to get a shot this year and Chris Dunn was going to have a tough time finding some minutes. I liked Chris Dunn's fit. Again, I'm very biased here, but I liked Chris Dunn's fit. Like defensively, this team's made up of a bunch of really defensive minded guys. That's Chris Dunn. That's what who he's been in the NBA. So I did like that fit, but it was going to be hard for him to get on the court. And I'm sorry, but Carson Edwards just didn't show me anything over his couple years in Boston that made me think like that guy should get rotation minutes. Yeah, he got a start. I think he started last season, was it? But he just didn't really show me much at all. So that was uh, unfortunate because, you know, obviously you root for a guy to succeed, but he just didn't really show us anything. Yeah, I think the thing with Carson is just that he always had to be a guy who could have limitless confidence to be a contributor, right? You have to have like limitless confidence to be that type of player who just comes in and scores some, you know? Like, you have to be able to come in off the bench and be like, I'm going to knock this shot down, and then you do it. And then in his new role, I mean, he's always been that guy at previous stops because he was always the best player on the team or, like, you know, maybe second best at Purdue or whatever it might be. But, like, he was always one of the absolute best players on the team. Comes to the NBA, and it's like, I think it would be hard 
hard to have that limitless confidence to be that kind of limitless confidence shooter, especially like when you aren't, you know, you look at Steph Curry, he was what, like, you know, top 10 pick. There was reason for him to come in and believe I am going to be the best player on my team. And obviously I'm not comparing Carson to Steph, but like Carson had to have that same kind of like limitless. I can shoot anywhere at any time and make it. And from an, in an NBA role, teams don't have time for you to be doing that, you know, especially on a winning team. Carson wasn't in a great position. The NBA was always going to be tough for him because he was never going to be the best player. And since he was never going to be the best player, he was never going to like manifest that into his game, if that makes sense. Yeah, he also needed to develop the confidence in other areas of his of his yeah, game that he never did because he was the high volume guy at Purdue. If you want to come and make the adjustment at the next level where you're not going to be in that same high volume role, you need to round out the other areas of his game. And he was just never able to do that. You saw him try to do it at times in Maine, but he would always fall back on that high volume side. You know what I mean? And again, we're not comparing Steph Curry, but Steph Curry was a guy who really was able to round out his game, eventually turned into one of the best three point shooters of all time, which helps as well. Best players of all time. One of the best players of all time. So that helps. But these successful high volume guys from college, they're able to round out a lot of their game. And while Carson has had difficulty creating his own shot as well at the NBA level, he also just never really rounded out the other portions of his game. That's what I was going to say is honestly, I don't think confidence was an issue. I think the dude was never afraid to chuck it. Like even in the times that he got, he would hoist them and like, yeah, maybe like internally he would not be as confident as he was in college, but he was never afraid to like log those FGAs. Like he was always shooting in my opinion. He said like how, yeah, it's, harder in like limited minutes to find your rhythm and to like obviously get the amount of looks that you would typically get if you were starting but I think he just what Grenham said I think he just never really was able to find confidence in the other aspects of his game like if the shot wasn't going down he's pretty much useless you see how Grant and Romeo and now Aaron Neesmith have found their way on the court like they build themselves up defensively and they really develop in that part of their game and that gives them confidence that okay even if my shot isn't going down I can still contribute to this team and like Carson Edwards couldn't do that I think there's a weird distinction to be made here between like, like real confidence and kind of fake confidence, because I think there is like, you know, sort of like a fake it till you make it type confidence where especially for volume shooters, where it's like Carson comes in, he's like, I know I'm going to make this shot. I'm going to shoot it. But like, I think a lot of times for volume shooters, like you can tell when they actually think they're going to make a shot and when they're just shooting to sort of project confidence. So I don't know. I mean, like, there's no question, Nicole, like he played terribly in Boston. Like he had one good preseason game and that was in in a good summer league. And that was pretty much the extent of it. And to Grenham's point, it was pretty obvious what he was trying to do with this year's summer league, right? Like he was pretty obviously trying to develop it like, hey, I can be a point guard. Hey, I can, you know, I can distribute and finish around the rim. And he did a little bit better, but like nowhere close to what the Celtics needed for him to crack the rotation, nowhere close for him to, to not get traded and like that's just kind of is what it is I mean I will be curious to see what it looks like in you know where like if if he ends up you know where wherever he ends up if that's Memphis if that's somewhere else but like I'll be curious to see if, if he can crack a rotation if he can put some things together but it was just never going to happen in Boston Brad was never going to give him enough leash to be the player that he clearly thought he was and you know I, I think that's kind of where we ended up yeah, the player I, that he thought he was was so different from the player <laughs> that he actually was at the pro level. I just think leading up to the trade, we've all sort of danced around it. Like, you know, he tries really hard or he's really good at Purdue. But like, in reality, like, I just don't think he's an NBA player, to be honest. Like, and I think we feel a lot more comfortable saying that now that he's not on the team. So you don't no, sugarcoat it anymore. 
No, it's honestly true. And I'll, I'll completely cop to the fact that I like the guy. Like I, I had a lot of interesting conversations with him, you know, especially his like rookie season. You know, I'm not going to sit here and be like, he was awesome in Boston, but yeah, I'm probably <laughs> going to, I'm probably going to pull some punches a little bit because I like him, but you're, I mean, you're hundred percent right. Like he just wasn't anything, you know, he was never anything close to good enough to get on a court, especially for the Celtics. But he's an, M- not an NBA player. He is a professional basketball player. Like he can make a lot of money overseas, totally. not playing a whole lot of defense, being that high volume guy. And I think he has a really good role overseas and he can make a lot of money for sure. I just don't think he has a role like domestically in basketball. He honestly could tear it up overseas. He really could. And I think that speaks to the fact like we've talked about this privately. I can't remember if we've ever said this on the pod, but like the way that the Celtics drafted in 2019, I think really hurt them in the championship pursuits in the coming seasons. Like they drafted Carson Edwards, not with like the 58th pick with like an early pick in the second round, like the 33rd pick. Do you remember who else might have been available at that time? Yeah. So one one kind of funny thing is that they could have, with the 34th pick, they could have taken Bruno Fernando. <laughs> so that, but I mean, you know, there was like Taylor Horton Tucker, Terrence Mann, guys who have played like real roles. I mean, and um, you're it, missing the main one. It's Daniel Gafford. Like, legitimately, like no, yeah. yeah, no snark at all. Like all those guys are, you know, significantly better contributors. And a lot of these guys were not guys that came out of nowhere. And that's my whole thing with the 2019 draft. Like there were a lot of people yelling about guys who the Celtics did not draft. Taylor Horton Tucker, I was pretty high on that guy. I, I would have taken him in the first round. You know, at the time, like you can go back and check the receipts. Like I was saying the Celtics should have drafted Brandon Clark and Kevin Porter Jr. Think what you want about Kevin Porter Jr. I mean, I know he's got his off the court issues and those are all legitimate. That said, he's, he's a, he is a bucket. He can really score. In the Celtics system, if he developed, I mean, you're looking at a guy with, you know, really high potential, like, you know, top 10 pick potential. That was always what he was. It was just always the off the court stuff. And Brandon Clark is, I'm sorry, he's just significantly better than anybody else the Celtics drafted in that entire year. Like, like Romeo Grant, Brandon Clark's just a better player. So, I mean, the 2019 draft, like they really had some opportunities there. And I I still think there's potential for Romeo, especially and and Grant, you know, like these guys could be productive NBA players, but there was a much easier route to getting productive players than what the Celtics did. And the fact that they didn't take that route, I think kind of damaged things because it did set them on this path where they have a group of stars and then a group of bench players who aren't ready to contribute yet. And that was a big part of the clash in, you know, last season and, you know, the, the COVID year was just the fact that the Celtics didn't have any depth because none of their guys, none of their young guys were ready to contribute yet. Brandon Clark was ready to contribute literally from day one. He was pretty good as a rookie. So, I mean, like, yeah, I very much believe that Danny Ainge was a bear, was an excellent GM and did a lot of really good things. And that when you look at the bulk of the good things he did and the bad things he did, the good outweighs the bad pretty significantly. But the 2019 draft was one of his lower points. Like That was not his, uh, not his strongest work. We were both ticked about Brandon Clark at the time. I think I don't know if the Celtics got scared away because he was an old. He was one of the older players in that draft, if yeah. I remember correctly. But it was so obvious that he was NBA ready from the jump, and it felt like they still took Grant, who was two years younger, with that same idea that he was the NBA ready guy, despite being kind of a tweener without like a clear role in the NBA. So yeah, Grant was two years younger at the time, but like. The Brandon Young, or I'm sorry, Brandon Clark thing just never really made a whole lot of sense to me. And one thing real quick I will say too, I do wonder sometimes if the Celtics traded down to 22 thinking that Brandon Clark would be there. Obviously they traded Matisse Thibel to the Sixers who just desperately wanted Matisse Thibel. 
And maybe they were just willing to bank that, hey, that one pick in between the two, that's not going to be Brandon Clark. Maybe that's what they were thinking. I don't know. But yeah, obviously that did not pan out because then Brandon Clark went there. And the other problem too with them missing on, I mean, again, I agree that there's still hope for Romeo, but the problem with them missing on the 2019 draft too is that there were four picks, five if you include Taco as a two-way. So that's like a third of your roster are these young unknown players that you're turning to for like bench depth and like that's just not fair to either party here you see Terrence Mann actually contributing for the Clippers and like being a legit you want a whole ass playoff game for the Clippers (laughs) and you wonder though like if that draft went differently where the Celtics could be and like it's pointless going into what ifs but like they did have a real opportunity when you look at the players available and the number of picks they had and where they were like what could have been you you really wonder and I think this is different than like oh like the Celtics drafted Kelly Olynyk instead of Giannis like I, I still think this is different I, I don't think it's the same thing and in our conversations about this like our reasoning is that Danny was just spooked by the whole Kyrie thing this is a, probably a whole nother episode but that trade for Kyrie Irving I still think any GM does it 10 times out of 10 but it really really affected Danny moving forward and just yeah. like uh how he operated as a GM like I think they were just so spooked by how that turned out that they wanted high character players if you remember their press conferences that day like Danny just talked about how they felt so confident in the character of all their players and it's like okay what about like their basketball conversations <laughs> So, yeah, that really that 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 uh, press conference really told me that they were never even close to thinking about Kevin Porter Jr. <laughs> yeah, he was not on their radar at all. I, and Nicole, to your point though, I think the biggest reason why this is different than the Kelly Olenek Giannis conversation is because the Giannis thing—it's like you could never have known that Giannis was going to become what he is. You absolutely could have thought that Keldon Johnson would be a productive NBA wing. You absolutely could have thought that Brandon Clark would be a very effective tweener, maybe small ball five, you know, with like super athleticism and all that. You absolutely could have go down the line, like Daniel Gafford, Taylor Horton Tucker. We know they had him in for a workout and we know that he did pretty well at the workout. Like these, these were, these were um, makeable shots that they missed, I guess. To bring it full circle, that's really one of my biggest takeaways when it comes to Carson's career. And it's not so much about him. It's just like yeah, sort of the situation that he was put in was unfair, I guess, to both parties for the Celtics to think that he could actually be a rotation player. And he just wasn't ready for that. But I think it's because of just how warped their approach was that draft. And it just really sunk them for the next two seasons. We will always have the 2019 Las Vegas Summer League where Carson Edwards looked like a genuine superstar and Jamont Waters looked like he was going to be a, uh, you know, just absolute stud. Uh, that was, that was, a, it was a fun, fun summer league that never really panned out. Um, Carson in the preseason too in Cleveland. Carson Cleveland. continued the momentum in Cleveland. So uh, things were looking up. Talking, got us all talking about his six, six wingspan and his ability to <laughs> dig. We thought it was going to work. I had to write a profile on Carson Edwards ahead of the 2019 season. And one of the Celtics assistant coaches told me that they showed Carson Clay Thompson film, including the film from the game where he broke the three point record. Because the Kings. And, yeah. And the reason why they showed him that film was because they thought he could also break the record. Oh my God. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) That is insane. Carson Edwards is Clay Thompson. And they were like, but you can't put that out there because I don't want to give him like the pressure and I don't want him to think about that. And I was like, "Mm, okay. Oh my God. That is funny. (laughs) Sometimes the best talent evaluators are still wrong. 
another member of the 2019 Las Vegas Summer League team that is no longer part of the Celtics is Taco Fall. He spent two years with the Celtics as a two-way player. He is headed to Cleveland. We didn't get a chance to talk about him last week. I think I, I speak for all of us. And I think one of the biggest takeaways from the Taco era is I wish Taco had had a little bit more of a chance to just kind of be about basketball and a little bit less about like Taco was a fan favorite because he's uh, an enormous human being. And it did tamp down a little bit. It was like Greta was saying before we started recording, it was out of control at Summer League, like the Taco mania and just how much of like a circus show it was. You know, it, I think it did tamp down a little bit in Boston, but I mean, it was always there, right? It was always like, oh, like this is our fan favorite, like our victory cigar guy. Like, you know, we want taco. Like that was always kind of hanging around the edges. And I do think that's a little unfortunate because whether or not taco is an NBA player, he kind of deserves to to find that out for himself on his own terms rather than on the terms of like fans who are all screaming that they want to see him because he's tall. I always felt for taco in that way. Taco is such a nice person that it it added to kind of like the cringeworthy feeling that you often got when people were screaming for Taco and it felt like a bit of a circus show. But I also think that element took away from the fact that he dramatically improved as a basketball player during his time in Boston. Like when they signed him to the Exhibit 10 deal or whatever it was ahead of Summer League, he had some major, major flaws to his game. There was zero ability to, you know, read a pick and roll and have any pick and roll defensive skills and his footwork improved. His defense improved a ton. Like he just moved better. His conditioning was through the roof compared to what it was when he was at summer league that first year. So I really do think he got very, very much better than he was when he was at summer league that first year. I hope that at some point for him, it kind of does level out a little bit in terms of the crazed attention. So he can just like focus on himself when he's in Cleveland and focus on being a basketball player, not dealing with all the outside noise. That being said, he dealt with it better, I think, than anyone ever could have. Like he was always extremely pleasant about it. He never like really batted an eye. He was always such a good sport about it, no matter how ridiculous it often got. And so it's pretty commendable how he approached it because he's still a young guy. So it wasn't like he was some vet who had been through it before or whatever, you know? And I went up to Maine a lot during his one season with the Red Claws and it was like madness up there. People were obsessed with Taco Fall. When he would leave the parking lot in his truck, people would wait for him to leave the parking lot. He would sign autographs outside of his window and stuff. But like, still, he was a great sport about it, even up there when there weren't, you know, as many cameras and whatever. So I just think he handled it better than, certainly better than I would have, certainly better than a lot of people would have. But I think he got significantly better as a basketball player too. So I hope he can find, whether it's on a two-way or whatever, find some form of a home in Cleveland as a two-way player can, as much as a two-way player can. I, I totally agree with Brennan that he improved. And like Jay Laranaga, Brad Stevens will tell you that 10 times over. And I don't think that was empty praise. I think that they genuinely believed that. And even if you didn't believe them, you could see it. And then secondly, though, I will say, given the circumstances, just that his NBA future is sort of unknown and that he's always going to be like a 15th man or a two-way guy, in a way, it sort of, I'm not going to say it worked out because obviously he wants to have a role on an NBA team, but like one of his marketing agents told me that like he would get like thousands of dollars for signings for just appearances. And that's so rare for somebody in that spot on a roster to have that demand and to be able to make that kind of money. I mean, even with various sponsorships, like obviously it's small, but like he got that free truck, he got that free Canada goose jacket, like he was able to, I guess, take advantage of the craze. 
So that's good in a way. Like, of course, he would rather be like a real NBA contributor. And I'm sure he'd trade all of that for a real role. But I do think like there are ways in which it did work out for him. He was able to bank some extra money. He did get more endorsements, more appearances. Like in what other situation are companies and event organizers asking for the 15th guy on the team or the two-way player? So I I do want to note that that I think helped him in a way. All of that is a really good point because he did, he he does make a lot of money from being very popular, which like, good, like make money while you can, man. Like life in the NBA is short and you gotta, like, you, you gotta try to do what you can. I will say he did a story with Jackie McMullen that I thought really kind of brought out some of the stuff about it. He said, it's awkward sometimes. I'm low key, but I attract a lot of attention and I'm not always comfortable with that. You know, Grant Williams said he's exhausted, but Taco will never say no. He's still going to stop and smile and take a picture. I worry about him. People don't mean any harm, but they need to understand he's a human like the rest of us. Like th- there was concern around him. But to your point, I mean, credit to Taco and, and I am I am happy that he has, you know, that, that, he, that he is able to do those marketing opportunities. And I do know that like Tremont Waters talked about this sometimes. Taco was everywhere, right? Like he was traveling constantly. He was hustling. He was like doing appearances in Boston and then driving back for games in Maine. He did to an extent seem to be okay with some of the attention. You know, whether he was okay with all of the attention, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe maybe even Grant was projecting some of what we're saying on the taco. I don't know. But there were kind of signs that he was a little bit uncomfortable with some of it, but he did use it to his advantage, which is great. Make your money, Taco. I think um, the inevitable role in terms of Cleveland is probably a two-way deal, right? They have 900 centers on their regular roster. So it doesn't really make sense to use another front court spot on that team. I know there's a couple of people who work with the Canton Charge that are pretty high on Taco's upside, at least. So that's a good thing. But who really knows how that translates to the Cleveland front office? Again, that's just people who work with the G League team. But still, I, I think a two-way slot is probably the most likely scenario if it works out there. And, you know, there will be a time when teams aren't willing to give Taco a two-way anymore, and we'll see what happens with his career at that point. But for now, I hope he has a good time in Cleveland. I hope he has. I hope he gets some chances to uh, to shine. So, all right, guys. Well, it's the middle of the offseason, and we don't really have anything to draft. But we do want to give a shout-out to our pals over at the Shades on Beer Company. Make sure you check your local liquor store. Find some Shades on Beer. Find a Geno Time. If you find a Geno Time, send a picture to us. As always, we appreciate anybody who's left us a five-star rating or a review. Those really help. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you know where to find us, and we will talk to you all again later this week.